0: I've been having a very lovely conversation with my guest today, Alexandra Docheva, who has such an amazing background. I feel like I've only skimmed the surface talking with her and reading about her beforehand. And one thing that came up in our conversation that I missed while looking at her extensive background is martial arts. And Alexandra, you said you studied it for a long time, you practiced it. What is your background and how does it impact your life currently? How does that play a role in your personal and professional life?
1: That's a great question, Whitney. Thank you for asking. Martial arts, I practiced for almost 12 years. It was a dream of mine when I was in the second or third grade. So I grew up in a former socialist country, Bulgaria, and we had a movie theater close to our apartment. We saw all sorts of movies, primarily from socialist countries and communist countries and other countries. But the Chinese martial arts movies were fascinating to me. So there were also some bullies at school at the time, right? Because we all grow up around some not so pleasant people from the very start. And I wanted to be able to deal with them appropriately. So I was dreaming of being a karate kid, so to speak. And I was practicing our shared bedroom with my parents. My parents and I slept in the same bedroom for a long time, practicing secretly until I revealed this to my dad, who was not happy about it at all. So that dream got squashed very early in life. But then when I came to the States, uh, when I was 30 years old, I got the chance to enroll into a martial arts school. And I loved it. I earned a black belt in shoring Goju Karate, and I have a blue belt in Aikido as well. So yeah, that was great later in life to accomplish. And it's helping many other aspects of my life with confidence and whatever you can think of.
0: I love that you shared how it's impacted your confidence. and I'd love to learn more about that because first of all, that's at the core of so much of your work, your writing, again, your history, all the things that you've done in life and learned from... And I've been really drawn to learning martial arts. I just haven't taken the time to set that up in my life yet. But for the past year, I was thinking about it primarily, as you also touched upon, as a way to defend myself, to protect myself, especially when I'm traveling alone. As a woman, I felt like having a lot of self-awareness, which I believe martial arts can give you having more strength, knowing how to use my body. But I would love to know where does confidence fit into all of that? And by confidence, do you mean emotional confidence, physical confidence, all of the above? What does that look like for you? What did you experience while you were studying and practicing martial arts?
1: Well, in every way, it can help strengthen your confidence, but it also helps to learn multiple other very important skills, such as respect for others and self-respect. The self-respect comes afterwards. Depending what state of mind you enter the dojo in the first place as a beginner student, people go to martial arts for different reasons. Okay, some people who grow up in ghettos in bad neighborhoods, they decide to do martial arts for self-defense and also to stay out of trouble By learning self-control, this is one of the most important benefits from martial arts, learning self-control in the first place. Emotional, physical, mental, any way of self-control. Because once you control yourself, you can control everything else around you much more efficiently. For me, like I said, it was a dream from childhood. But I also struggled with a self-inflicted lack of self-esteem and self-confidence for over two decades. And when I saw the opportunity to enroll into a martial arts school, it was really a very lucky coincidence because I moved into an area that had the school literally half mile from the house. And I thought that's my chance now. That was something I wanted to do when I was nine years old. I'm 30 now. Why the heck not? They had adult students. And after several classes, the teacher decided that I actually might turn out to be a pretty competent fighter because I had enough vengeance, rage, and... uh anger in me that needed an outlet based on my past and perceived failures or successes that weren't the way I wanted them to be at the time. So martial arts was a great way to let that anger out, build some fighting skills, keep a good physical discipline, meet some interesting people and build self-confidence. But because it lasted 12 years, of course, it involved many other benefits and gains from the whole experience. I ended up changing school a couple of times because of relocation or uh, my standards increased, improved. And so I sought a better school eventually uh, from the one that I started. And I have described extensively my in my blog and my book, my actual, the longest teachers I had, I'm just forever grateful for I learned from them with like their personal example and how they set up their dojo and everything the old school way. So there is a lot to talk about in martial arts, but to me, truthfully, was an anger outlet, confidence builder, and yes, the fighting skills, which I really, really wanted to have as a female.
0: I had not thought about some of those benefits, especially the anger side of it. It makes so much sense as you're sharing it. (laughs) And I found myself reflecting on that because I'm not somebody who generally experiences a lot of anger. But then again, anger can, just like any emotion, can be nuanced, right? And so frustration, I suppose, could fall under anger in some ways, resentment, all of these tougher emotions that I believe many of us learn to repress. Did you find that martial arts was bringing that to the surface for you? Were you learning about not just how to deal with anger, but what exactly anger was like for you?
1: So with me was a little bit the opposite of what you were saying. I was not able to repress my anger for a long time. Martial arts taught me to control it and come to terms with it and understand that most of it was baseless. But that took a couple of years of training. That's where self-control comes and self-respect and all that stuff. Because at an intellectual level, you know it's not good for you. You know that. But internalizing and believing that you can do much better than getting angry at everything and at everybody takes a whole different process of learning. And when you build up this physical skill and confidence that you can fight your way physically out if need be. Contact sparring is a great way to build self-confidence outside of learning all the other drills and everything. But then your perspective on anger changes. It's a gradual shift that you don't immediately appreciate as it happens. But years later, when you reflect back, you say, ah, that really helped, if that makes sense.
0: It does. And thank you for sharing this because it's reigniting my interest in it. I was just thinking about this a few days ago, how I had hoped in 2022 that I would start taking martial arts and it just kind of kept getting pushed back as a priority. But what you're sharing here makes it sound so incredible and appealing. And that also leads me to another thing in your history, which is music. You grew up in a musician's family, I believe, in Bulgaria. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. 26 years of violin. Wow. So since you were growing up in this family, that were all your family members musicians? Is that what you mean by a musician's
1: family? So my father was a double bass player professionally his entire life. My mother still is the most renowned music critic in Bulgaria. And I grew up in this family. So one of them was the playing musician. The other one was the the critiquing musician. So it was an interesting dynamic in the house. I started violin at age six. There was not much negotiation around it. And that was part of why when I was in the third grade, my dad was absolutely angry. And you know he exploded when he heard that I had been practicing karate because, heavens forbid, I break a finger or a hand, then his fragile little violinist will be out of shape for three or four months. And that was unacceptable because I had to pass a competitive exam for the first, fourth, and eighth grades for the specialized music school where I was at for 12 years. And there was an exam every year. So it was competitive and there were some high expectations there. So you had to be in top shape at all times. So I started practicing six hours a day when I was in the seventh grade. Before that, it was between three, four, five hours a day. But a teenage, you practice eight, nine hours. I mean, it's truly like the sports people. You're just close in your room and you practice, practice, practice. And then you either compete or give recitals. And you're hoping to get into a great orchestra one day after you finish your uh, academic studies as a bachelor's undergraduate or graduate or become a soloist or a great teacher of music. And because the competition is so high all over the world and my parents had programmed me that I had to leave Bulgaria because of the corruption and poverty and low perspective for job and satisfaction, I practiced a lot, right? And so music taught me great discipline. And that's what brought me to the United States in 2000, eventually.
0: That discipline is interesting, too. And hearing about how violin played such a big role in in your day. I'm curious how much of that was what you wanted to do, especially as a teenager. You know, that's a lot of time. And I think if you're passionate about something, it comes really easily. Was that the experience that you had or was it more as you touched upon something that was part of just your family life, the expectations of your father and your mother? the hopes that they had for you. Where did your decision making and scheduling come into play in terms of your preferences and desires, especially as you were kind of simultaneously starting to feel interested in martial arts?
1: Yeah, the interest in martial arts was early in the third or fourth grade. Then it had to fade away because the violin took prevalence, right? When you practice long hours, you learn to like it because you can see how other people succeed. And of course, I was exposed to great recordings of world-class violinists and other musicians. So that was very inspiring. The problem was that my practicing wasn't the way my dad really wanted it to be. And because you don't listen to your parents when you grow up, I think very fast. So I wanted to learn just as fast as I thought. And paying attention to detail at the time wasn't something that I really grasped fully the importance of the attention to the fine detail. And as I grew up in my mid and late teenage years, I developed a sense of guilt towards my dad, who was so adamant about me learning it the right way. And he dedicated a lot of time to me, especially when I was younger. Then he let me practice on my own because he either got tired of my stubbornness or he trusted me that I could overcome the challenge of not paying enough attention to detail where he was wrong because <laughs> I didn't overcome that challenge. So once this sense of guilt, which I wasn't aware of at the time, but 15 years later, I became a what had happened because I analyzed, manifested itself in a uh, very hard to overcome stage fright, which lasted quite a few years and messed me up really good. And that's where the whole crash in self-confidence and self-esteem started peaking and peaking and piling up again, felt like out of control because it felt subtle and unimportant until I realized it was very, very important. By then it was way too late to fight it and try to reverse it. In my then very limited perception about myself and my abilities to change my mindset because I was so young and many of my uh, peers, classmates had already accomplished more than I had. Even though we started the opposite ways, I started very strong when we were children and what happened was they succeeded more than I did gradually. And once I realized that and it hit me very hard, that stage fright just catapulted to uncontrolled levels for me. Because like I said, self-control was not something I was capable of at the time. And it truly reflected value on my career for a long, long time. It's so interesting
0: to hear about these evolutions. And so many things are coming up as you're describing it. First of all, I grew up with a musician. My father is a pianist and music was really important to him. And he really tried to encourage my sister and I to lean into that as well. She actually tried the violin when she was really young. And I remember witnessing her struggling and not understanding it. My dad wanted it for her so badly, but she just never grew into it. And then she ended up playing, I think, the trumpet. But it seemed like she felt like she had to do it. So it probably only lasted a few years. And then by contrast for me... I practiced flute for all of middle school and high school. I don't remember when I stopped playing, but it's been a long time. And as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about how, for me, kind of similar to my sister, I felt almost like I had to do it. It felt like a way to bond with my father, to please my father. I had some personal interests, but I really felt like I was just going through the motions. I'm glad that I did it because playing music. It brings out a different part of your brain. It reminds me a bit like learning a language, but that combination of holding an instrument and your fingers moving and your brain's processing the notes and you're taking in all the little details like from the conductor and performing too. I'm not sure that I experienced stage fright because I was in a band. I was very rarely like spotlighted. I usually could kind of blend in. And on that note, I probably could have had opportunities to, what's the term, like the first seat. Is that what it's called when you're the primary? The principal. The so, principal, yeah, the I principal guess. player, right? I remember I was getting good enough to take on that role. But I suppose stage fright may have played an impact in my confidence that wasn't quite there. There was one other girl I remember who played flute and we were very close in our level, but I would always let her take on the principal roles. And I don't know in hindsight, was that confidence that, or self-doubt or was that a lack of interest and passion and I'd rather somebody else take it on that probably really wanted to do it? I, I'm just not, I'm not sure in this moment. So it's really fascinating to listen to you and reflect back on those experiences of how it felt like once I kind of give myself permission to not do it anymore, that's when I let it go.
1: I'm curious, do you still play violin? Do you still have a passion and interest in it? Well, I actually haven't touched the violin since I became a nurse in 2011. So, because you either practice or you don't practice. I mean, by then, I had been a violinist for 29 years because I decided to become a nurse after 26 years of playing the violin. So, three years of nursing school, I played in the orchestra my job while I was in nursing school. And then I dedicated myself to a full-time nursing position because I wanted to overcome that stress and novelty as fast as possible. I thought I would cheat through the five years of getting used to it. Of course, I didn't cheat through it. It took me actually six or seven years because I'm a very slow learner, honestly, (laughs) reflecting back. But I listen to classical music every day. It's absolutely still part of me, but I don't play it anymore because I felt that enough dedication for 26 years between seven and nine hours a day. I think that's what, and I was missing a lot on other aspects of life because I was so limited as a musician. I knew nothing else. So I wanted to catch up on everything I had missed while I was a musician. And as far as your um, reluctance to not take the principal position in your band, I mean, you know, in classical music, the principal flute player plays lots of solos lots of solos for flute. And that is exposure, that is responsibility, and that can cause insecurity and stage fright. So I probably had the passion. Maybe somebody didn't just tell you, "Hey, challenge yourself. Why not challenge yourself and learn that little thrill of adrenaline and how to control that? It's a great opportunity for later in life. Maybe if somebody had told you that at the time, you wouldn't have refused the principal position so many times. But it's hard because you have to make that fast decision. If you don't have the proper influence and encouragement, it's easy to miss the opportunity because you don't see it as an opportunity. You see it as a way to kind of fail and expose yourself. The things that you don't do so well will be now clear to everybody. And truthfully, if you know that nobody's life depends on that, you might as well take the challenge. But like I said, there was not, no adult person to say, hey, with me, try that. Try see what happens. It's you should get nothing to lose. And you didn't do it.
0: You know, I think that that encouragement was there. It was definitely there from my father, but he was probably more relaxed about it. And I'm sure he would have been thrilled and so proud, but perhaps he could detect that I didn't seem that drawn to doing it. I also Mm -hmm. had Incredible instructors. And actually, I was reflecting on this recently for some reason. It came up. I was thinking about my band teachers and how they had so much passion. They wanted nothing more than students to lean into it because it was a requirement at certain stages of my education. You know, everybody had to learn an instrument. And then once you signed up for band, you were kind of committed to it. And we would do performances. And my instructors were very, Passionate about it. And I remember kind of going through phases. There were times that did feel really good, but other times I just was losing that interest and maybe just holding on. So I was kind of like one foot in it. And also, as you're describing, you were practicing for hours a day. I probably did the bare minimum because I don't know, something else was pulling my interest or I didn't have that discipline as you're describing. And it's interesting to think about discipline because. I feel like, as you were mentioning, you need some guidance there or a reason behind it or discipline. It's not that I didn't have it within me to be disciplined. It's that perhaps I didn't have the motivation to be disciplined. I'm curious what your beliefs around discipline are and how do you make that happen and how important is it to growing into something like music or nursing even?
1: That depends on your age and your priorities, because when you are in your teens and early 20s, you really don't understand that you really don't have the time to mess around. And it hits you when you hit 30 or a little bit later than that. That's what happened with me, right? I was 32 years old. I had already earned my master's and doctoral degrees in classical violin here in the United States. I defended my monograph in 2007, 2008 when the financial crisis hit. I got a pretty sobering news over the phone about two of the most talented, younger than me violinists from my professor's class in Louisiana. I got the master's and doctoral degrees from LSU, Louisiana State University. But these two young men uh, had proceeded to earn master's degrees in very prestigious schools. And they were now in 2008, they had decided, as a mutual friend told me over the phone, to stop being violinists. And one of them was going to pursue medicine to become a surgeon like his parents. And the other one was going to pursue finances to sell real estate to very rich people. And that was like a slap on the face because these two always scored great, great positions in orchestras and... They were like talented from a very early age. It was obvious that they would go far. And if they were doing this, where was I? That's what the question I asked myself. Then I went into a vacuum for a week or two, and nothing made sense anymore. That was 2008. I was 32 years old. So the discipline part and the lack of discipline and getting a grip of your situation and your perception of yourself and where you are in life and how much you have to show for hits you very suddenly. It's a crossroads. It's a rock bottom. And to me, it happened didn't only happen professionally at the time, but also personally. That's a whole different story. But the two things clashed in a very unfavorable manner. And from then, there was just only one way, and that was up. The other way is underground, but that was not an option, right? So you go up, you rebuild the self-discipline. So you take what you have learned. And I had learned a lot about playing the violin long hours, working hard. That was good, but my mind discipline wasn't so good. So the physical discipline was great. The mind discipline, the correct focus, not so great. Part of the incorrect focus was focusing on my failures and what I didn't achieve the way I wanted. So this had to be trashed from my mind because now I wanted to achieve some more. I had to find a way to proceed with my life that was going to be to make me more useful to people, more helpful to people than when I was a musician. And there was a calling in the orchestra that was also a registered nurse, which was pretty amazing. Being a violist and a nurse at the same time, I had never met anybody else like this. So I went to her, I knocked on her door and said, hey, how did you do this? Tell me how you did that, because I think I need to do something similar. So she had me at her house with her family for two hours. She introduced me to the preliminary classes, how you sign up for that very very competitive college in uh, upstate New York, one of the 10 most competitive colleges in uh, in, uh, North America, the St. Joseph's College of Nursing and she even let me borrow her 1200 page anatomy and physiology textbook and a similar size nursing basics textbook for me to read before the classes started the next fall and I took these books and I started reading them from cover to cover. I read them four times before the classes even started indeed just like I did with all the other textbooks because I had zero science basis, let alone in English. I was completely behind with everything you can imagine. And I was sitting in class with people who are 18, 19, 20 years old, and I was 32. (laughs) So it was an interesting thing to see because I thought at the time with my limited mindset, and that's a cultural thing. Well, if you haven't learned enough by the age of 30, what do you expect to learn from now on? And that was another limitation I had to overcome, cultural limitation. I mean, my parents were petrified when they learned that I was changing professions. Are you crazy? Do you know how much suffering you're going to go through with people's sicknesses, with the real world? Do you know what a hard profession nursing is? And I said, no, I don't. And I really would like to find out. I said, because up to that point, I'm 32. I have no clue about the real world, if you really think about it, guys. And they didn't like to hear that at all. But because they were across the ocean, they couldn't do anything about it at the time. They were also against my martial arts study that started two years prior. But again, they were across the ocean, so there was not not much they could do about it. So I realized this freedom of created by distance allowed me options. And I started taking advantage of that. But it's hard to change professions when you've been stuck in one area for almost three decades from childhood and know nothing else. I just realized, however, that if I didn't do it then, getting into a profession that was in high demand and would guarantee me a job all over the world, I would have very deep regrets 20 to 30 years from 2008. I got very scared of poverty and it dawned on me that the regrets that I would have 30 years from 2008 would be so big that the regrets I had up to 2008 would really pale in comparison. And that's what kicked my butt. To rebuild my discipline and dedicate myself to something completely different, and just jump and take over,
0: Alexandra. That's such a amazing story because when you touched upon regrets and life transitions um, and the cultural limitations as well, I, I wonder how many people are facing that and thinking it's too late to change. And also similar to what you said to me about the music in terms of needing someone there to encourage you, to guide you. The way you're telling that story, it sounded to me like you heard of somebody else that you knew, this other musician who was also in medicine and real estate, which is part of your story as well. We haven't gotten to that yet. Was that the you mentioned that as a crossroads and it sounds like a turning point was it that person's story Or did you have some other guide in your life that before this woman, right? Because this woman played a big role in getting you there. But you had to make that decision to pursue something, to seek out that guidance. Was there anything else that played a role? Or was it just that the story plus having the right mentor with you was the perfect
1: combination to get you through this
0: big transition?
1: So, like I said, there were two people. One of them was going to the real estate, selling to rich people, finances, and the other one was going to be the surgeon. So it was. More oh, I thought than it was just... the same person. <laughs> I was thinking, wow, that's amazing. No, it, it, it was two people, and and that's what made it scary because it's not just one person making a drastic change. There's two people and very talented, and that's what really overwhelming. Not only him, but also him. Oh my gosh, what the heck, right? What am I doing? So. There was no guidance at first. I mean, the nurse in our orchestra, she guided me, but before she guided me, I experienced a hell of a week in the orchestra. Like you feel you have no basis under your feet, vacuum, but the even bigger vacuum is between your ears. And that's a horrible feeling, absolutely horrible feeling. You lose all connection with yourself. You lose purpose, motivation, everything, because everything you've done up to that point, 26 years of your most productive life are like in vain. Like you wasted your entire life and you know nothing else. And that's not a pleasant feeling. It can send you to depression, which it did, or it can motivate you. That happened later, right? Because you grasp the magnitude of the change you need to make with yourself. And it's not just the steps that you need, the little steps that you, the motions you have to go through to accomplish that next big goal to become a different type of professional, but you have to unlearn some counterproductive and self-deprecating mental habits. And that was the biggest challenge. I knew from the start that was going to be the biggest challenge, which is why I embraced it first and foremost, because I figured my mindset stopped me from being a great violinist. So this mindset needs to be erased like yesterday, if I want to make any progress and turn my back to all mental mediocrity that I had allowed myself to exercise on myself in order to succeed in the next profession. So that was the hardest part. And I couldn't verbalize it that way. When you're overwhelmed and completely into the eye of that storm, it's hard for you to put it into words, which is what crushes many people. If you can verbalize it at the time, it's easier, but you can't. So you just embrace your ignorance and you embrace your desperation. And these two propel you to the next level because you have no other choice. Like I said, I also personally crashed because I had a husband. That husband then decided we were no longer compatible and that had to be dealt with too. So having hit rock bottom, you have nothing to lose.
0: It's pretty remarkable to hear this story because you're describing rock bottom but simultaneously doing something extraordinary because when I misunderstood you earlier, I thought you were referencing one person that studied both medicine and real estate. And I thought, wow, that's incredible. And then as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, oh, but you're that person. You became that person. <laughs> That's this like two incredible in one. <laughs> background. I mean, not just two in one, but the martial arts and the music. I mean, like the things that you have studied and dedicated your life to, and the way that you shift through these challenges and to go from those low points. And I'm curious, since the title of your book is, it really is simple. Do you feel like this was simple on some level or did you learn to lean into the simplicity and find the simplicity over time after you started to go through these
1: life transitions? Option B is the correct one. Experience brings you there. Experience brings you there. Yeah, the title of the book, actually, it really is simple, a holistic approach to self-confidence. So yes, the experience brings you to the simplicity once you have straightened up all of your life aspects The moment you realize what's important in life and you bring everything under control so that you're as independent and self-reliant as possible, that's where you become very self-confident, which comes with a great deal of responsibility, accountability, everything people hate. (laughs) Basically, everything most people try to avoid, you don't avoid, and then you become successful, self-built, and self-reliant. So simplicity, now it's easier. Like when I started this new consulting business out of the half in connection to the book, because lots of people demanded my knowledge as a consultant and coach as a result from the book. But now I know how to handle this and how to structure it much faster and much easier based on my experience with my three real estate businesses, with my nursing career. 2000 is about 14 years ago. That was not the case at all. I was from scratch. And that's how the book came to exist. How to start from scratch when you're in a midlife crisis and build yourself again responsibly, legally, and ethically, <laughs> preferably.
0: Before we continue this conversation, I want to pause to thank this episode sponsor, Athletic Greens. And there's a great tie-in here because Athletic Greens has a product called AG1 which I started taking because it is a small daily habit that has big benefits. It's one thing you can do every single day to take really great care of yourself, no matter how busy you feel, if you are looking for a way to improve your digestion, to have more nutrition, to impact your nervous system, your immune system, get more energy, all of these things that I've been experiencing, I highly recommend AG1. It is a powder that you mix into water. It tastes delicious. It's got this great tropical flavor. It's easy to travel with. And I just love the simplicity. And because they're sponsoring this episode, they wanted to make it extra easy for you. So Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of their immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash Wellevator. That's athleticgreens.com slash W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R to take ownership over your health, and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. I will put the link in the show notes as well as in the description of this episode right below the podcast player. So if you click see more, you will see that website to make it super easy and simple for you to pick this up and try it out. Now back to the conversation. How do you define holistic? Because when I see that, two things come up for me. I kind of have like this knee-jerk reaction and thinking of holistic as a form of wellness and often rooted in Eastern medicine. A bigger definition that I'm generally more in alignment with is seeing holistic as the whole and incorporating, bringing everything into consideration and finding balance so how about you? What is the definition for you, and especially in terms of this book?
1: My definition of holistic is significantly more detailed. Because yes, holistic, originally you associate with health, mental, physical, and spiritual health. And I have dedicated as a nurse, I'm very biased towards health. I'm a health maniac from all directions that you can imagine. But I have dedicated five chapters of the book to health. However, I place just as equal importance to spirituality, career, finances, and relationships. You can't have one without the other, and these five pillars of life to me are absolutely essential to optimize and keep at high level at all times and under your control if you want to be holistically self-confident.
0: Absolutely. It seems like a lot of people don't have that in control, I'm sure. <laughs> That comes up a lot as and, and through your conversations, your coaching, no wonder people are drawn to that. One thing you said earlier was you have to unlearn self-deprecating mental habits. And I feel like that's worth revisiting. It was actually something I was thinking about yesterday through a quote that said something along the lines of self-deprecation is a comfort. And I've been reflecting on that because... The more I think about it, the more I notice that in others. I'm still learning to notice how that might play a role in myself. But outwardly, I notice a lot of people talking very poorly about themselves. And if I look at that through the lens of a comfort as the reason that they're doing that, do they find some sort of comfort pointing out their shortcomings, pointing out negative things about themselves? Then maybe that explains why that is this habit, So for you, how does self-deprecation play a role or perhaps keep you away from living in more harmony? And how can you move away from self-deprecation to create more balance and achieve these five pillars of life?
1: I was doing this and self-humiliating myself. That was an attention-seeking strategy when I was younger. I know this now, I didn't know it then. So it's a completely useless attitude. It contributes zero to your personal growth and prosperity. It's a false sense of comfort. And the sooner you get rid of that mindset, the biggest favor you'll lose yourself and everybody around you. And then you will learn to prioritize the people who you associate yourself with or don't associate yourself with because the ones that are listening to you whine are just as big losers as you are at the moment. Once you become winning that situation and removing yourself from that type of thinking, you will begin associating yourself with better people that contribute better to your personal growth and respect you for who you are. For your ambitions and aspirations and desire to grow personally and professionally and in any other way. But the company is very important. People who self humiliate, they try to do this no matter where they are. I see this all the time. I just remove myself from these situations now instead of listening and offering this warm shoulder for them to weep on, I give them options. Some people you can help, others are beyond, because if you don't recognize you need help, you won't accept it. You you just want to complain to complain, or you want to complain because you want to find something better. And there is, uh, I mean, you know, is stereotypes about cultures. And for the Eastern Europeans, I've heard said that, happy when he's sad. They're happy when they're sad. So there is quite a bit of truth into that, because in my culture... Very popular to basically compete and who can complain and express more misery about their lives. It's kind of a friendly, competitive edge in most conversations in my culture, which is truly not productive at all. And that also took time to get away from, right? Psychologically, even in the United States, where most people don't complain or didn't used to. Now it's diff- that's switched too. So <laughs> we have a generation that complains all the time and expects oh. everything to be served to them. But yeah, that's not a good mindset. It's an attention-seeking behavior. That's all there is to it. It's not helpful. It wastes time in useless thought process. It clutters your mind. And when you have cluttering thoughts, petty thoughts, self-humiliating thoughts, these cannot coexist in your brain with. Positive, aspirational, inspirational thoughts. It doesn't work that way. Your brain doesn't process these things at, with the same intensity. So it's your choice because your mind doesn't care what you give it. It just grows what you give it. It's like soil. You plant something in the soil, it's going to grow it. Whether it's a wonderful fruit, an orchard, or a whole bunch of weeds or toxic, poisonous plants, the soil will grow it. Your brain is the exact same way. It doesn't care what you give it, it's going to grow it. So you better. Take charge of your thoughts, your thought process, what you give your brain, what you feed your mind every day, and it's going to grow from there. That
0: is such key information because that point you're making about attention also resonates a lot because as I've been reflecting on the self-deprecation, I see it a lot on social media. I see it a lot in content that tends to go viral, You know, lots of people seeing it, lots of people commenting on it. And that's likely because misery loves company Yes, and it gets attention. People are very drawn to drama. They're drawn to bad news. I mean, that's huge in our media. It's how can we share what's going wrong for somebody else? And I think people get drawn to that because either they can relate to those things going wrong or it makes them feel better to see things that are worse for somebody else. But to your point... If you're absorbing all of this negativity, all of that lower vibration, you're taking that in and you're feeding it more within yourself. And I love that idea of thinking about yourself like a plant. And if you're just either not taking care of yourself, you're not getting enough water, you're not putting the right nutrition in, or you're just filling yourself with lifeless content, then you can't really do much from there except to rot away
1: yes you can rot away at a young age mid-age older age you can be born old or you can stay young forever it's uh, lots of choices there But the right nutrition for the mind and the body is the same thing. Mind and body can't exist without each other. And that's another, of course, part of holistic approach. But uh, like I said, with holistic self-confidence, it's not just your mind, body, and spirit. You have to have the material security in life, but not provided to you by somebody else. This is the important thing to touch also, because if you are not financially independent, you won't be mentally, spiritually, and physically healthy for a long time because of the anxiety of the dependence of the insecurity. And this is an important thing that many holistic teachers don't touch on. And I don't blame them. The reason they don't touch on that is because there are just so many horrible health problems Right now, around the world, especially in the United States, chronic health conditions that make you a commodity, an asset to the healthcare system. And these practitioners just really try to at least strengthen people's health mentally, physically, and emotionally the best they can. But the holistic approach to self confidence is not only limited to health. It's just that health tends to be taken for granted so much because it comes to most of us for free in life. And the things we get for free, we take for granted. And ironically, those are the things that we really can't replace, the things that came to us for free. We can't replace those things. Our health, our minds, lots of loved ones, you don't pay for these things, but can't replace them. So we take them for granted. It's a strange, strange trap of mindset. And like you said, when you think holistic, you think more of the health aspect, huge aspect. I admit I'm completely biased towards it. That's why I dedicated most of the book to it. Yet... The other four aspects are just as important.
0: I love the way that you phrase that and having us shift our mentality, Alexandra, about our finances. And I want to come back around to that because there's that idea around like the best things in life are free. And as you're mentioning, we can't replace them but finances are a big part of our well-being and finding that balance and stability and simplicity in there and I'm curious about your financial philosophy how has that grown and shifted and and how is that message shared in your book
1: so the financial philosophy developed because when i became a nurse in 2011 finally after nursing school i thought i would be coasting on the profession and have beautiful security job financially it, And I I was earning more money per year than I ever did yearly as a musician. No kidding about that. However, I saw lots of my colleagues were broke, even though they were earning paychecks much higher than mine because of their seniority. I couldn't comprehend that for like two or three years. But I quickly learned I had to also learn to start my own business. I first delved a little bit into website creation and search engine optimization. And then I came across my mentor, who is a self-made millionaire who started from scratch, him and his wife. And I read six of his books, then I bought his real estate investing course online, an inter- information product that was a three-month course with a personal coach over the phone every week for half an hour. that drilled me all these math assignments, financial calculations and property evaluations and everything. Financially, I have learned that you can't rely on a job as we saw how many layoffs, how much insecurity, look at what happened in the last two years. Then you cannot rely for retirement on 401k, As evidenced by the financial crisis in 2008, and now in the last two years, people lose retirements. Great way to lose your retirement, put your money into 401k, a profoundly ignorant way to invest because you have no control over this money. And then you end up taking more, uh, I mean, much less when you are 65 than you expected that you will withdraw from that investment, so-called investment. So I started my businesses to become financially independent. So today, this is what I am at. I can work, I cannot work. I can choose my own i don 't have to work. I have multiple streams of income that are unrelated to a job, but i don 't agree with many statements that oh you can you shouldn 't be an employee, you should be a business, you should start your own side hustle Well, for one thing, being an entrepreneur is a whole different ball game. You learn different things, you learn mostly about yourself and your risk taking ability. Many people go into business because they can't take the stress on the job. They hate their boss, they hate their colleagues, but they don't realize if you're the business owner, you just have five to 10 times more responsibility than you are an employee. So leaving the job because you hate the job is not the motive to start a business. And this is where the crisis is right now with all these young entrepreneurs whose venues are sponsored by their parents and friends and have no clue what they're doing. I support that you should be able to do both. You should be able to work for somebody else. And you should be able to run your own business, whether it's a small business or a corporation where you not only provide a great product to your clients, but you also provide jobs and food on the table for many families who work for you. And that way you are even more useful and helpful to society. So there are so many benefits to either philosophy about how to earn your finances, but the most important part is what you do with your money once you earn it, whether through business, whether through a job or through both. Because then you need to learn to invest your money and make it work for you. And that's the most important aspect of finances. And you can become an investor without working very hard if you're really smart and savvy about it. Again, there are probably limitless options and ways to multiply your money nowadays. The sky is the limit. But as far as educating yourself and putting the time and taking the risk and increasing your risk tolerance, because the higher yielding investments involve more risk and you need to know how to handle the risk. Okay. The lower risk options involve less revenue. So you need to understand all these things. But the whole financial aspect has these two sides. One is your career, which people confuse with finances because many expect to become rich when they work. And the job of your employer really isn't to make you rich. It is your job to make your employer rich, if anything else. But your job at the career is to learn and to be helpful to others. That's the spiritual satisfaction of being useful to society. But then your responsibility to yourself is to make yourself wealthy by learning how to multiply that hard-earned money that you earned. I mean, that's a technology, sorry, but that you have now in your savings account. And instead of buying yourself bullshit status display items that bring no value into your life. You invest this money and multiply it and create streams of income that are unrelated to a job and they're lower taxed because they're not earned income. So there is a lot to learn about the finances, but it's a huge portion of your holistic confidence and esteem if you know that. Because you have so many more choices in your life, you can improve your health in many ways if you have the financial options it just impacts everything, your education, your children's education. It is very important. And if somebody tells you, well, money is not important, they really don't know what they're talking about. They're insincere, they're ignorant, or both. I don't know. But yeah, I don't buy this anymore because it just really doesn't work. I couldn't agree more. You said so many powerful
0: things there. And There's a lot to digest here. I'm just sitting here thinking, wow, I mean, you've inspired me in so many ways throughout this conversation and you're lighting things up within me and coming back to the very beginning of the conversation about martial arts and now talking about finances. For me, the two are actually happening or evolving around the same time. And (laughs) that makes me wonder like where the tie-in with martial arts and finances there is for you, if at all. It all seems to be connected, but are there ways in which martial arts has impacted you
1: in your financial mindset? Yes, ma'am. Because preparing for the black belt test, now you got to understand, I was learning under a national champion in Shoren Goju karate. His name is uh, Master Hanshi Greg Tierney and his incredible wife, Master Hanshi, Judy Modaffer, Tierney. She was the uh, first woman black belt in central New York at the time when she earned her first black belt. And uh, they're both 10th Dan right now, national champions in kata sparring and extremely competent martial artists. So they instilled in all of their students the black belt mentality, perseverance. That's the main lesson you take here. So martial arts helps with everything else in your life because... They strive to teach you that the real dojo is life. It's not the four walls between which you practice with your peers and train on each other. Life is the real dojo. So what you learn in martial arts, all these mental tactics and self-control and discipline and perseverance, you have to persevere through the sweat and pain. It is very applicable in your financial endeavors. Because there are risky situations, there are moments when you make mistakes, when you lose your hard-earned money or part of it, depending how (laughs) dumb you were when you started your particular operation or how knowledgeable you were. And getting through these defeats and humbling moments determines your further success and growth financially. If you give up early, you remain poor. If you keep learning from your mistakes with brutal honesty and doing better next time and even better next time you become wealthy. You make yourself a millionaire, even if you start from scratch. That's how it works. It's not a get-rich-quick scheme by any stretch of the imagination. You need to put the patience, the sweat, the risk. Some sleepless nights come along with this too, yes. But hey, once you overcome a couple of things and you see that you're picking your harvest from your efforts, that only encourages you to keep doing it unless you become arrogant. And then you go back to your old mental habits and lose everything. I've known people who've done that. And I've chosen not to be one of these people from the very beginning. So I proceed pretty conservatively with my growth, yet I constantly keep educating myself because there is also this difference. Well, I'm very conservative financially. Okay, are you conservative because you are actually prudent and knowledgeable or because you are uneducated and you don't want to take risks? So you want to be able to make a difference with this too. But martial arts and finances, I mean, martial arts is connected to everything. It's a way of life. The perseverance and self-control are the things that propel you with every other aspect of your life. And with martial arts, you learn this if you have good teachers that really want you to succeed and you're pursuing higher belts and real accomplishments in martial arts.
0: I really didn't expect for this feeling that I have right now to be part of the outcome of this conversation with you because you have just given me so many more reasons (laughs) to start off with martial arts as soon as possible. And that leads me to one of my final questions for you, which is, where do you begin? For someone like me, I feel like I'm almost in that similar place, even though I don't feel like I'm at a crossroads in my life, but I feel... I can relate to when you were first starting to feel interested in medicine and you started to dive into it. For someone like me who wants to start off with something new like martial arts, where do you begin?
1: Well, you go to 10 or 12 schools. You sit through two or three, four classes for three or four hours in each school. See which one is more of a social club and which one is a real martial arts school. Then you set your goals for yourself and pay the fee and start going to classes. Perfect. Martial arts for women is just the most amazing thing. See, they emphasize the anti-bullying policies for teenage kids that struggle in school. But for females, I mean domestic violence, abuse on the job, and all that stuff. I think that will be much lower percentage in real life in if more women knew how to fight very well and defend themselves. Because see, I really, very rarely, I have had to use my martial my actual martial arts, physical skills to defend myself. In most instances, my demeanor is such that so you look at me and you know it's going to be a big problem if you mess with me physically. Because of the way I carry myself in the street or in the, at the gym, because I'm a fitness maniac to maintain my physical shape and grow it too. It creates many, I mean, it changes the way you carry yourself in daily life. And I am a very strong believer that every woman must know how to defend herself. It's just no argument. It's a way of life. And people look at me like I'm telling them something weird and out of line, when to me it's the most natural and normal thing. If you're a female, if you're considered the weaker part, you need to be able to fight really, really well. Nothing else makes sense to me at this point after having practiced it for so long. I'm almost 50 years old and I don't carry around fear that something can happen to me if I know how to avoid and not get into a bad situation in the first place, but if worse comes to worse, I'm going to destroy them. I'm not going to just sit there and wait to see what happens. But it's a black belt mentality and mindset that your life and dignity are non-negotiable, that you learn through a at least five years of dedication to martial arts. You're not going to go there and take two or three self-defense classes. That is not going to build your mindset. So if you're contemplating starting, there is no reason why you shouldn't start. You're just, if you're procrastinating, that'll take so much longer for you to start. And some of schools are more expensive than others, but if you prioritize on it, you should be able to find a way to pay for your martial arts school. See, for when I was starting nursing school, I was like really poor, man. I was very, very limited financially, but I decided I might skip meals, but I wouldn't skip karate classes. That's a decision I made immediately when I saw that I was going to be very limited financially for at least one or two years. And it scared me because that was such an insecure time of my life. But I told myself, you will not stop karate. You may not eat lunch, but you will not stop karate. And guess what? I ate lunch every time. I never was hungry or poor, but that mindset I set for myself just probably to find more ways to earn income. That's all. And I wasn't limited. I was living within my means, rationing my food, Obviously, it didn't kill me. So go ahead and start your martial arts school. Just find a good school, though, because many of them are uh, have very low, poor standards for advancement. Make sure that you go to a good school. If you want to take an experienced martial arts friend with you to point you in some direction to tell you, yeah, this school is bullshit. This school is great. This school can be better. Or you can do it yourself, but shop around a little bit. It's your money. It's your time. And start from there. Thank you so much. This conversation
0: has brought some things to the surface for me and helped me clarify, get some new priorities. I wish that I could just clear my day and focus on the martial arts (laughs) research, but I'm adding that to my list for later this week because I basically needed someone like you to say these words and help me clarify that priority, as I said. So I'm deeply grateful because I did not anticipate that being something that would come up. And I'm just in awe of the lessons that you've learned and what you've shared with us. And it just makes me very excited about this wonderful book that you're offering to the world. So where can someone get their hands on this book If they're feeling as
1: excited and eager as I am right now. Before I share that, I would really want to wish to you to please start tonight. Dedicate half an hour on research on martial arts schools. Don't start at the end of the week, because then you will start who knows when. Dedicate 15 minutes to half an hour on your research on martial arts if you're really passionate about it and start today. Look at the locations, don't procrastinate you want this, you can do this, you're capable, and you will be a fantastic martial artist because it's a great experience. You'll meet some great people. And so do at least 15 minutes to a half an hour research tonight. Promise me you'll do that.
0: I am adding it to my list, my schedule right now. And see this... This shows you how magnificent of a coach you are to even take that time from me. But imagine other listeners who may be feeling the same way in this moment and just taking this advice. It doesn't even have to be martial arts, but what could you take away from what Alexandra shared today and just dedicate that 15 to 30 minutes tonight, even if you don't feel like you have that time? Thank you so much. You
1: deserve it. You deserve the best for yourself. Do the proper research and you won't regret it. I promise you. I promise you. The book can be found on my website. The website is holisticselfconfidence.com. No dashes. holisticselfconfidence.com ebook version, paperback version. The ebook is purchasable worldwide. The paperback is purchasable in the United States. We're working on the worldwide for the paperback, but the shipping costs are such that we're trying to find the most affordable options for people. Right now, they have to pay more for the shipping than for the book itself. So we're offering it ebook, much more affordable. But in the US, if you like to hold the book and turn the pages like I am old fashioned, so to speak, you can purchase the paperback in the United States from the website www.holisticselfconfidence.com. Perfect. And for the listeners that are used to getting
0: information like that in the show notes, of course, it'll be there along with the full transcript and the team that I work with does such a beautiful job of pulling out some of the amazing quotes you've shared today, Alexandra, putting it into sections. So for anyone who's similar to Alexandra and myself and loves to read and to take in information, you might want to read through this transcript a few times. And that is there for you along with a link to her book, her website, all these resources where you can learn more. The show notes are at wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R- Everything in one place to make it easy. You can also look on your podcast player in the description of this episode. There will be links for you there too to make it ultra easy so you don't have to go anywhere else. And Alexandra, again, I'm just... Feeling, I don't want to use just thankful and, and grateful because I, I wish I had a, another synonym for those words right now because I feel honored for you spending the time with me and sharing these things. I feel just deeply moved by what you've shared today, specifically with me, but also your story and the path and the twists and turns of your life have just been a complete delight to listen to. So thank you for being here today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I truly appreciate your very thoughtful questions in this conversation. And I'm very hopeful to have been useful to your listeners, to your audience.
0: I have no doubt. And it's been my pleasure. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to WellEvator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R dot com.